Why are people putting onions in their socks? Why isn't natural necessarily better? And what does a data scientist and misinformation debunker want her own doctors to know? Find out on this episode. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Brad Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc Lending, the personal lending platform for doctors by doctors. Traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending to doctors because a lot of us carry significant debt. But at Doc2Doc, they know that as a profession, doctors almost never default on their loans, and they take that in consideration when they're setting our rates. I love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community, so please check them out at doctodoclending.com slash PGTD. That's Doc2Doc Lending, number two slash PGTD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Dr. Jessica Steyer, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Bradley Block. <laughs> so I'll give, I'll give a brief introduction, and that is that you're the co-founder and CEO of Vital Statistics Consulting, which is interesting because as we discovered in our conversation beforehand, you've worked with one of my prior guests, who is my brother, who is very similar things with data analytics and helping figure out what if what economic and uh, other impacts policy changes. It sounds like that could be a podcast in and of itself because for those physicians out there that have maybe policy changes that they want to that they want to enact or convince their hospital system to do or a med tech, you know, idea, you know, you help them <clears throat> create a use case and really an economic argument for for why this should be enacted. Exactly. It's all about turning data into meaningful information, helping to use data drive decision making in healthcare. Because, you know, it's great that people pass policies and enact these programs, but we want to know, do they actually achieve what they're intended, intending to achieve in terms of, you know, quality, cost, satisfaction, there are any number of outcomes. So yeah, small world. <laughs> so one of the questions we're going to get to later is like, a lot of times, policies like you see it in politics they're creating these policies without the the knowledge of the impact that it's going to have because it just sounds nice how do we move on with our day knowing that this is how the world is run we'll get to that later so it's funny we have all these interpersonal connections but that's not why i reached out to you the reason i reached out to you is because you've got an amazing podcast and really social media presence it's not just a podcast the podcast is kind of the core of it and then your instagram pages are full of tons of incredible information. It's called the Unbiased Science Podcast, which I love. I'm a huge fan of it. And the goal of that is to dispel misinformation and misconceptions across an array of science and public health topics. For anyone who hasn't checked it out, it should be required for like health classes, like high school health classes really should be listening to this and learning about it because of all the misinformation out there. And you guys just not only do you dispel misinformation, but you really provide a framework for thinking about how to approach information and misinformation. You just said that so much better than I could, but that's exactly what we strive to do. It's just to make people better consumers of health and science-related information. And there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there. And I and I think COVID has also really impacted the way that we're consuming information. And we could talk more about that, but sort of how we got started was thanks to COVID and, you know, media outlets 
getting access to preprints and not really understanding how to interpret the data and then taking things out of context and lots of misinformation being spread that way. So, yes. <laughs> like that Cochrane analysis that masks don't work and suddenly, you know, you're just using your own biases. And you guys talk about the biases a lot, which I love that, you know, that which bias, selection bias, what am I thinking of? Ah, where you're going to just pick the data that you cherry pick the data that already fits your preconceived notions. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And why can't I think of it? And not information bias, no. Selection bias, no. I mean, there are so many different types of bias. There are. There are. And we're, we'll be talking about them more. Yeah. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's not get married in that. So let's start with the unbiased science origin story. So how did this come to fruition? Yeah. So I'm a public health scientist, a data scientist with specialization in health policy. I'm obviously super passionate about all things related to health and prevention and basically population health, making people healthy, pe keeping people healthy. So I went to Stony Brook University. And while at Stony Brook, I was in the Women in Science and Engineering program, WISE. And I went to school with Dr. Andrea Love, who is in the Honors College. And Andrea graduated, obviously, and she now has a PhD in immunology and microbiology. So we're both female scientists. You know, we met over 15 years ago, but we kept in touch and we've bonded over misinformation, really specifically related to vaccines. But then COVID hit and we realized that our friends and family were reaching out to us to make sense of all the information that was being hurled at us in terms of, you know, in, in, by headlines. We were sort of individually educating our networks and we're like, hmm, why don't we join forces? She's the microbio perspective. I'm the data scientist macro population health perspective. We also have very different personalities and ways of communicating. So we did some of these joint Facebook lives, Instagram lives for our networks, and people really commented on our chemistry and how comprehensively we were covering these topics. So we said, let's formalize this. And that's how Unbiased Science was born. And as you said, you know, the podcast is obviously is in our name, so it's like the cornerstone of what we do, but it's evolved into this social media presence. And we realized that, you know, some people listen to podcasts, but if we want to reach other people who maybe aren't listening to podcasts, who aren't scientifically minded already, and who won't, you know, voluntarily listen to a podcast on science in its name, we should really lean into social media and maybe put out these infographics that are a little bit easier to digest for folks who don't have this scientific background and training. So that's how we got started. So not just <laughs> where you think your audience should be or where you consume information, but where the audience actually is. Yeah, we always say we want to meet people where they are, and we don't want to be an echo chamber. Obviously, we come with our own beliefs and backgrounds, but we want to reach people across the aisle, you know, people who are skeptics, because that's what we really need to break through to, not people who are already scientifically minded and, you know, know how to really consume and critically appraise this information. Something that maybe I should pick your brain about after the show is creating a team, because it sounds like you had these modest beginnings, but now you've got a real like juggernaut of a team. Like it's really, everything is very well curated and professionally done and very well researched. Like it really so professional from just like two friends who got together and were answering their friends' questions on Facebook. 
Thank you so much for saying that. And Andrea and I, we do both still work full time. So this is like our side passion project. So we don't really sleep. We have to remind each other to eat and shower and things like that. But yes, we have this amazing team of volunteers, people who really believe in our mission of science literacy. We volunteer. 99% of our content is unsponsored, unpaid for, and we could talk more about that. But yeah, I mean, this is it just speaks to amazing people who are passionate about healthcare and public health and all that good stuff and want to make a difference. So is there anything that you've covered on your show that has changed your mind? Like you went in thinking like, oh, I thought this was good for me. And it turns out, I mean, yeah, life is not binary. Things are not good and bad, right? There's, it's all different shades of gray. But is there anything that you've, in creating your show, you've changed your mind about? Yes. Supplements are a big one, vitamins. So if I felt a tickle in my throat, you know, I would reach for my vitamin C or my zinc. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes I'd have a little like elderberry gummy at these things. And so I think really digging into the evidence and realizing there's really not a whole lot of data to support taking vitamin C when you have a cold. There is some data to support zinc if you take it really early on and, you know, it can potentially shorten the duration of illness and lessen the severity of symptoms. There's not a ton of data to support that, though. And then just opening my eyes to the supplement industry, which is largely completely <laughs> unregulated. You know, we don't really know what it is we're consuming and there's not a lot of data. We're basically just paying for really expensive urine. You know, sometimes there can be interactions with other drugs. You know, you could take too much zinc, you know, and then that can cause problems. So I have not spent any money on vitamin supplements since starting the podcast. <laughs> so unregulated, you know, like the FDA regulates drugs. And so there's systems for sampling and testing to make sure you're getting what you're actually paying for. But with the supplement industry, it's the Wild West. There's no oversight. I read an article a while ago about like seafood in New York, where you're paying for salmon and you might be getting steelhead. You're paying for tuna and you might be getting, like, so there's, because there's very little oversight there, you might not even be getting the fish that you think you're buying. And with the supplement industry, it's the same. You're buying echinacea, but really you're getting like parsley. You don't know right. because <laughs> nobody's minding the store. The other thing that we like to remind folks, you know, the FDA and big pharma often get vilified, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. They want to keep us sick. They want to profit on, you know, selling medication, selling vaccines. What do you think the supplement industry is? Are they working for hugs? You know, no, that is a multi-billion dollar industry as well. And people, I don't, there's a weird cognitive dissonance where they, you know, they don't realize that. That's an industry as well. Yeah. <laughs> like your doctor, there's skin in the game because if you're not getting better, you're going to go back to the doctor. Whereas with the supplement industry or some, you know, some other non-physician practitioner, like if you're not getting better, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, maybe you should go see your doctor. Like we are the end of that. Yes. We have real skin in the game if you're not getting better. Right. Whereas they don't. They'll just, you know, oh, it didn't work for you. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, it's not like, well, what do I do next? That's where we come in. What do I do next? When you see like a news outlet discussing something that you know is baloney, like I know in my waiting room, we had, you used to live on Long Island, so you remember Channel 12 News. On Channel 12 News, they were talking about local bee pollen. They had someone on there who is some type of healthcare practitioner talking about local bee pollen and its use in allergies. And they were like, you should definitely do it. It mm -hmm. works. And it is 
garbage. Like even the mm-hmm. science behind it doesn't even make sense. You can make an infographic that makes it seem like it makes sense, but it doesn't actually make sense. And it infuriates me. Well, and it, can I just one thing? And I'm so sorry because I've been seeing that and I've heard locally everyone is saying. Because it's allergy season soon. Well, and the thing is, buy local honey. Well, we have to talk about the whole appeal to nature fallacy, but it's honey. So it has to be good. It comes from the earth. Anyway, sorry, go on. (laughs) My question is, how does it make you feel when you see stuff like that being peddled on the news, which is supposed to be a reliable source of information? I lose my mind. Yeah, I need some serious medication to regulate my blood pressure. I mean, even the outlets that I feel are maybe more credible than others. There was just recently the World Health Organization, they updated their their roadmap for COVID vaccination. And they're basically, what they were saying is, remember, the World Health Organization is making policy recommendations for the whole world. And outside of the U.S., there are limited resources and different infrastructure. And so what they were saying is to the world, depending on your infrastructure, your resources, your access to vaccine, vaccines, you might choose to prioritize high risk groups for COVID vaccinations and kids tend to be lower risk. And, you know, we should be prioritizing the routine vaccinations perhaps over COVID vaccines for these lower risk populations, again, like kids. And so this got taken out of context to me. The World Health Organization is saying that kids should not get COVID vaccines. And that's not what they said. I mean, that's just one example, but there are endless examples. And it's infuriating, and it often feels like the media is working against us. And we advocate so strongly for the media should be welcoming partnerships with scientists. Because you need to hear from the scientists' mouths. You know, so much seems to get lost in translation and distorted by the time it hits, you know, the media room. And also, they obviously want clicks. They want people to tune in. So they're making these sexy headlines that are attention grabbing. But people often don't read beyond those headlines. And then that's how these misinformation spread. It's like Dr. Oz, right? So he wasn't making, at least my understanding was he wasn't making money off of things like that he was selling on his show, right? Like he wasn't profiting off the supplements. But what he was profiting off of was the clickbait was he was saying these things that were so catering to what people wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. And that's the thing with the news, too, is they're working for advertising. And so if they don't have eyeballs, then they're not going to make a profit. And so they're going to say things that get them more advertising, not necessarily lead to a more informed population. So the conflict of interest is with the advertising. Ah, okay. so I'm glad I'm not alone because my wife is like, I don't know why like this stuff aggravates you. Like let people take their supplements, let people take. And it's, and as you guys like to say, the dose makes the poison. And I feel like this, the same, the same thing with misinformation is like, yeah, a little bit of misinformation isn't going to be harmful, but a little misinformation leads to more misinformation and it leads to a susceptibility to then more being misled and misinformation. And it snowballs from there. And now suddenly the dose has made the poison and the misinformation is now poison. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And I would almost argue that with misinformation, it's almost like the little bits of misinformation are actually extremely harmful because they don't seem that bad. You know, little, little, little pieces. I mean, we could talk about things like putting onions, cut onions around the house or onions on your feet. Yes, you guys just had that episode out. Yes. We just talked about that. And, you know, is it true that onions have some antimicrobial properties? Yeah, but not, first of all, not when placed on your feet. You have to consume them, and you also have to consume huge amounts of them. That You have these seeds of truth that then get blown out of proportion. And I do feel like it's a slippery slope. You know, when we kind of hook people with this little bit of information, it's like, hmm, okay, well, then maybe there are natural, holistic alternatives to other things that I'm doing to improve my health. So in that sense, it's like the little nugget is actually very poisonous. (laughs) Although I think there is something to the onions because... You know, humans are vectors of disease. And if you consume enough onions, you're going to stink, especially if you put them in your socks and nobody's going to want to come near you. So they're not going to be within that like six foot radius. And listen, nobody's going to get you sick because you're not going to be around people anymore. And my big gripe actually with those things, because you're right, I mean, is putting a sliced onion in your sock, is that necessarily, is that going to harm you? No, probably not unless you have some like contact dermatitis or some like allergic reaction or something like that, but it's very unlikely. There you go. But, you know, if people are doing this in lieu of actual medical attention and diagnosis and treatment, that's where the problem lies. And I've seen so many TikToks and whatever, you know, social media reels where moms are giving this to their parents or doing this for their children. They're, you know, they have the kid has a fever. And instead of bringing down the fever, taking their kid to the pediatrician, they're doing these holistic natural treatments, which are not doing anything. And then to reinforce the bias, you know, with time, we know that people often get better, right? You know, time heals. And so then when their kid just naturally gets, you know, will get better the next morning, they then attribute that to the onion or to the garlic they're shoving up their nose or whatever it is they're doing, when of course that had no impact. (laughs) And that then reinforces their belief that these things work. And then they're going to do it to the next time. And then it's going to make things susceptible to this to more information, and then it's going to lead to distrust of, you know, the house of medicine and yes. scientists in general, and because now they know better and they've have the evidence to, to prove it, and so so that's the the appeal to nature fallacy. Is that correct? The the that that natural is therefore better, which is in contrast to I think it was in the nineteen seventies better living through chemistry, right? I think that was like. Dow chemical or DuPont chemical, like better living through chemistry. We were really like the creation of plastic, like life is going to get easier and it's going to better and chemistry is good. And now it chemistry is, yes, now chemistry is the villain and only natural is better. Right. So this is my big thing is the natural because I, you know, I like using my, my, my beauty products, my facial creams and everywhere I look, it's clean beauty, all natural, non-toxic, all these buzzwords that are purely marketing terms that have no actual definition. What does clean mean? There's no regul, regulation of the term clean, all natural. I want 
my beauty products to contain preservatives so that they don't grow mold and I, you know, don't have to use them within 12 hours of opening that, you know. And just because something is made, is manufactured or made in a factory, that does not mean it's bad. If anything, that allows us to learn, you know, take pieces of nature and then manufacture them without having to destroy nature. You know, we could make them in a lab. So the example I always give, and sorry, I get really heated about this, is willow bark. So back in the day, people were chewing on willow bark and they realized that it was helping with pain control. And unfortunately, it also led to like projectile vomiting and nonstop diarrhea. So there is a compound in willow bark, and I'm going to forget, sala something, some chemical compound that is basically the basis of what we know today is Advil. Like salicylic acid or something? Is it like aspirin? It's something like salicin, salicylin, something like that. And so now we've learned from nature. We were able to just select that compound, distill it down, get rid of the other things that are present in willow bark that lead to these terrible GI effects and can safely take these things for pain control. So it's like, what you know, that that's a perfect example of learning from nature, incorporating it. And now we have these ways of manufacturing these things where we don't have to, you know, deforest. We have to cut down these plants and these trees, all this stuff, and we can safely manufacture them. So I just don't understand it. It's like there's this false dichotomy that people are creating where it's like you're either natural or you're dirty. It's chemical and it's toxic and it's bad. Ignoring that, of course, everything is a chemical and the dose makes the poison and every single thing, including air and water, can harm us at certain levels and doses. Let's say we could, let's say we could take that willow bark and we uh-huh. can figure out just how much you can take safely without having side effects, have it be effective. Oh, wait, that's medicine. Yes, that's medicine. It's, 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 and it's ridiculous that you get, like, I, I sometimes push, push back on on friends that, that are like, well, turmeric. I always say a funny, turmeric? Yeah. I was actually approached. <laughs> someone wanted to be on my podcast, and they said that they had a PhD in turmeric. I didn't realize it was a discipline. Yes, because I guess people can just make up PhDs now. So my response is always, if there was something in there that was an effective anti-inflammatory, Merck or Pfizer or whoever would have identified the compound distilled it down and figured out which is a toxic dose, which is a non-toxic dose, or which is an effective dose, and then they'd be putting it in a pill form and they would be selling it to you at a massive profit. So if there is something in there, they would have found it. So either there is something in there or there isn't something in there. Right. We actually have a post planned on this. And yes, there are some anti-inflammatory properties to turmeric. But at what dosage? You know, if you're just like putting a little turmeric in your water every morning, you know, that's yeah. probably not doing all that much yeah. for you in terms of being it's gotta be enough to turn your poop red. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The appeal to nature fallacy. There's this whole discipline out there called naturopathy, right? Like a doctor of naturopathy. And that's something that I want to talk about because in medicine, we don't Like they're basically our competition, right? Our patients are going to, sometimes fine, they'll go to them and they'll go to us. But sometimes like they're out there on social media, in the news, like being experts. What is naturopathy? Like what does it claim to be? 
In a nutshell, it is treating illness with nature. They're very, you know, naturopaths are very anti-pharma. You know, they don't believe in the use of medication or pharmaceuticals to treat illness. You know, we're talking about treating with energies, with acupuncture, with homeopathy. That's a whole other conversation. That sounds like a mishmash of completely (laughs) unrelated disciplines, right? It is. I mean, I just think just generally they personify the appeal to nature. And I think they've become the hero in this anti-medical, anti-scientific, anti-pharma growing movement in this country and around the world. You know, and how great, you know, if I could treat a chronic illness or something with turmeric or honey or a sugar pill. And I don't have to take a course of antibiotics or whatever. It's this, again, it plays into this dichotomizing of nature versus the medical establishment. And it's this booming field. It's only growing in popularity. And they call themselves, you know, doctor, because I guess they're doctors of naturopathy or naturopathy. People say it differently. And then there's this authority that they're setting up because they have doctor in front of their name. I think that it's one of the biggest threats to our entire (laughs) healthcare system, and it's eroding the trust in our medical establishment. This is more of a policy question. You might not have an answer to it. How is it that they have a doctorate? Who has the authority to bestow the ability to give other people doctorates in, like, it seems like you should be able to, we should be able to put together a school and start giving people doctorates and, like, make stuff up apathy. Like, how is it possible that they have this, that they're doctors of something that is not based on evidence or reality. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. And it's something that I've thought about as well. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And we actually, we did an episode where we had a former ND naturopathic doctor on the podcast. And she basically said she ran from the field when she was advised to treat a patient with cancer, with some a wild, extremely heavy dose of intravenous turmeric, I believe. It's basically criminal, you know, obviously. I don't have an answer to the why or the how. I just know that it exists. And I think it's, my husband's an ER doc and he often says, you know, he has, and you even mentioned, you know, you have patients come in who they say that they've seen a holistic doctor and that naturopath. And it's an interesting thing because you as a clinician, and I'm not a clinician, so I can't speak for you, but you want to establish a relationship with your patient. You don't want to just dismiss their concerns. You know, you if you want to have a relationship with them, you can't tell them, oh, well, everything you're saying is completely ridiculous. You can't do that. And then a lot of times we know people do unfortunately have these chronic illnesses, chronic pain, and, you know, they're struggling to find a treatment and they're really, you know, they're looking for other options. And so sometimes the lesser of two evils, you know, rather than just pushing away the patient and sending them to the holistic doctor is to sort of allow them to do both, you know, so at least they're getting some <laughs> evidence-based treatment for their condition, but then also not completely dismiss this interest in the natural. And I'm curious, I'm sure you see that and deal with that all the time. So I think it's different for your husband because he's an emergency medicine physician. And so there's not the relationship building that we see in other disciplines, right? And so I think to alienate them off the bat, you're just pushing them more towards this other non-science, make-stuff-up-apathy discipline. And sometimes in otolaryngology, I'll only see patients once, but but a lot of times they come back for other issues or 
you know, it's a chronic issue. And I think it's important you establish a relationship, you establish rapport, you don't alienate them, and then you'll have more opportunities in the future with that rapport to then, you know, help them dispel this. One thing that I do, though, is because they'll come in often with eardrops that are homeopathic eardrops. And the fact that this stuff can be sold is infuriating to me because it is misleading. And for those out there who don't know homeopathy, and you've done episodes on this before, so please correct me if I'm wrong, is we're not going to really get into the weeds with it. But basically, you have something that's been diluted to the point that it's not chemically there anymore. And supposedly water has memory. And the only time that I've seen water have memory is in Frozen 2 when Olaf comes back to life, right? Because water has memory. That's the only time. Everything, water doesn't have memory. There's like one oxygen and two hydrogen molecules and that's it. And so, oh, sorry, atoms. But the idea is that it's diluted to the point and then it's somehow therapeutic. And so that's, to me, criminal that it can be sold under the guise of actually being anything other than what it is, which is expensive water. So the patients are coming in. And so I will ask them, are you familiar with homeopathy? Or do you know what that is? And they'll say, no, I thought it was just natural, right? And so I won't then tell them that the appeal to nature fallacy is wrong and like really go after them. That's going to burn the bridge, you know, the relationship. But I will educate them. Actually, no, that's not what homeopathy is. It's not. It's something that's diluted to the point where there's no actual anything in there. The fact that they're allowed to sell this is kind of ridiculous, but really there's nothing in there and they're just they're just trying to take your money. And so I will, I mean, I try to deliver it a, you know, a little more effective way than that, but yeah, but at least I'll educate them so they'll know in the future not to waste their time. We're obviously we're having a really like frank conversation now, but I think we can recognize why people fall prey to this, especially when they're in this vulnerable place of, you know, chronic illness or chronic pain or whatever, and they're looking for some sort of a solution. And we always preface this with like, we're not judging you. We understand why a lot of people fall prey to these things. They're marketed unbelievably effectively. Oh, and by the way, the term we were trying to remember earlier is confirmation bias. And so a lot of people, you know, will seek out information that just confirms their biases when it comes to these things. And a lot of the people who work in this space, you know, holistic, naturopathic, whatever, they're often, you know, they'll take little seeds of truth and evidence and then just just blow them completely out of context. And they're often citing things like preclinical studies, animal trials, you know, with an N of five rats or something like that. We can't generalize those things. That's another fallacy. The, what is it? Hasty generalization fallacy. That's another one of my favorite fallacies where it's like you take these little, little, little teats. It's, yes, it has been found in rats and, you know, these preclinical studies, but then they miss you know, they generalize it to humans and we can't do that. They extrapolate. Exactly. Sorry, I can't find my words this morning. So yes, we're on the same page. <laughs> so how do you deal with critics of your platform? Because you guys are going out there and you are, you're coming from a place of education, right? You're not trying to, you're not calling anyone, you know, you're not calling anyone out. It's not like it's an ad hominem attack, right? Which is another I don't know if that's a logical fallacy, but kind of in the same cognitive bias, whatever, same word, right? But still, people end up taking these things very personally because you are undermining their beliefs and people see themselves as intelligent and intellectual and you're telling them that they're wrong. And so you end up with a lot of critics. So when you're dealing with those critics on your platform, how do you respond to them? Like, are you responding 
for the lurkers that are just like reading or are you actually trying to change the mind of the critic? I love a lot of what you guys do on Instagram because they're like references to prior episodes. Like a, you've got such a big compendium now. You should, you're like, actually, we covered that already in episode um, 12. So just check that out and, you know, download more of our podcast. Right. So we do get a lot of hate and sometimes it's actually like really rather violent and hateful. And, you know, it's what I forget if they bring my kids into it. You know, at one point we were talking about vaccines and I shared that I got my kids the COVID vaccines. They're like, oh, I hope your kids die or get I was like, OK, eh, that's a big trigger for me or like anti-Semitic stuff or whatever it is. I go ham. You say you go ham to anti-Semitic ham. ham. Oh, I do. Ham. The- Hard as a MFR, you know? <laughs> Sorry. Reference to a non-kosher food because you mentioned the yeah okay ham ham is an oh acronym not ham yes no a very inappropriate acronym so in the very beginning we're human and I think you know we we responded you know we really we interacted with the trolls and then we quickly realized that's completely futile you know we're giving them attention we're giving them you know we're fueling the fire there and that that's not going to do anything so now we are sort of more methodic in our approach to this. So remember, I'm a data scientist. I'm really skilled at identifying patterns. And so when there's a pattern in comments, we pick up on it. And then we'll usually do a post or a podcast episode or a reel that then addresses, for example, I'm just thinking early on, there was a whole thing about how EUA is not full FDA approval. Oh, the vaccines are not FDA approved and da 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 and so then we, you know, and obviously they didn't just, they didn't say it nicely a lot of the time. It was <laughs> full of They immediately moved the goalpost because once it was approved, then, yeah, then it was still, they found something else. Correct. And so then we'll say, well, that's not entirely true. You know, EUA is uh, pandemic, is the pandemic equivalent of FDA full approval. And re- basically they restructure how the trials are run. And rather than being run consecutively, they are run concurrently because we're in a major time crunch. You know, so basically, again, we'll try to be more constructive and try to, again, identify patterns and then respond to comments. But really, our goal, as I said earlier, is not to just spew information just to, you know, to be an echo chamber and have people give us likes. I mean, we really are trying to educate people and really people who have not had that training in basic sciences, you know, who fall prey to so much of the misinformation. But there are a handful of people that they are not at all receptive to new information and we can talk to a blue in the face and there's no way that they will get through to them, but it's not going to stop us. Right. They just dig in and that's it. Yeah. So one one thing, and feel free to, you know, throw someone under the bus with this. One one more question, and that is, you know, because this is a physician audience and you've learned so much from creating all of this great content, is there anything that you've heard either from your personal physician or from like your kid's pediatrician that you would be like, mm, wait a second, actually, we kind of covered that and I would just like you to know that. So For our physician audience, anything in particular that you would like us to know? For sure, the vitamin supplements. I think this idea of, you know, telling your patients to take, you know, vitamin C or zinc early on. I think, you know, I get it. And again, I'm not a clinician, so I can't really fully understand being in a room with a patient who wants to leave with, like, if your patient has, you know, a virus or something and they can't take antibiotics, you know, they still want to feel like they're walking away with some plan. Actually, I should do an episode on that because I have a whole shtick because I'm an ENT, right? For like what medications actually work for the common cold, what to take for what symptoms and what has actually evidence behind it. 
that work. So maybe, maybe I should do, maybe I should do that episode. You should. So I'd say, well, so the overuse of antibiotics, you know, especially in the peds population where you have a parent who's freaking out and da, 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 you know, rather there's an ear infection that you're suspecting is likely viral, like maybe don't give them the script for the, you know, antibiotic. So there's that. And then the supplements. For me personally, I remember when I was younger, my my parents were advised not to give me the HPV vaccine. And wow, do I wish that they had seen a different doctor. I ended up getting, I had HPV later and I had to have the colposcopy and I had the precancerous cells and it was a you know horrible experience. So I, that, I wish that was not recommended. And then to have doctors not, you know, even if you've had HPV and it, it, you should still get the HPV vaccine. It's not going to treat your existing HPV but remember that the vaccine protects against multiple strains. And so even if you had HPV, the vaccine can still protect you against other strains. So that's another one. Let's see, another example. Oh, my big thing, I mean, I lose my mind when, when doctor, and I get it. Oh, and the boys should get it too, to protect the girls and because we see it in otolaryngology causing tonsil and tongue cancer. Yes, thank you. The spacing of vaccines and that whole thing, you know, I, again, I sort of, on one hand, what we were just talking about, like meeting your patients where they are, and it's better that their kid gets the vaccine rather than not getting them at all. But playing into this idea that spacing vaccines or that the immune system can be overwhelmed in any way when if your kid goes to the park and plays in a sandbox, they're going to be exposed to like billions of times more pathogens. Yeah, well, and all these other things. So there's that. And then when we were living in Florida, so I mentioned to you, I was living in Florida and then recently moved to Western Mass. We had a pediatrician tell us that our kids did not need to get the COVID vaccine. And that's a huge thing for me now, you know. That, yes, thankfully, kids tend to have very mild illness, you know, if they are infected with SARS-CoV-2. Thankfully, the COVID illness is mild. But that's not the case. We know that over 1,500 kids have still died of COVID in the U.S. alone, Thousands more have been hospitalized. We have a safe and highly effective means of protecting them from that. It just, it's a no-brainer for me. And I've heard more docs that I can count, honestly, I've lost track, have said, eh, I wouldn't get it. It's not necessary. I mean, why? My son has asthma. Yeah, like, I'm just thinking, like, I would, I would do anything to protect my kids um, we were, from getting We were sick. first in line. We were, when our kids, as soon as it was approved for our kids, First in line to get it. First in line to be boosted. Absolutely, one one hundred percent. Ourselves, you know, ourselves, my wife, and I both, uh, you know, immediately. And so, you know, there's this teenage boys. There is this risk of cardiomyopathy, and this is a gray area. It doesn't mean they shouldn't get it. It means it should be part of the conversation. Fine, not that they 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 shouldn't get it. Yeah. Yes. And docs, you know, obviously I do get it if you're the parent of a teenage boy and we have seen, yes, there, you know, some cases of myocarditis following mRNA vaccination. Yes, myocarditis. Not, I yeah. get it. Can we then talk about how viral infection related myocarditis is actually more common and more severe than vaccine related yep. myocarditis? Like we have to bring that context to these people because yes, again, it's not happening you know, in a vacuum. It's not happening in a vacuum. <clears throat> You know, the logical fallacy, I don't know which logical fallacy, I'm so terrible at these. It is that if you get the vaccine and therefore it causes myocarditis, then you've done something wrong because you created the problem as opposed to getting infected passively and then it's not because of something you did. So like 
the ne- neglecting to get the vaccine then increases your risk of getting cardiomyopathy. You haven't done anything wrong because you didn't, you know, because you got infected, you didn't get the vaccine. So there's a logical fallacy there as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the last thing I'd add, I'm sorry, and docs, I love you. Like I said, I'm married to a clinician. I have the utmost respect for clinicians. I could not do it. Is the flu vaccine. Why are docs? I should be offered all the time and recommended all the time. I don't understand what the block is with, <laughs> with flu vaccine. Block. <laughs> anyway, just had to throw that in there as well. <laughs> no, I didn't get it either. And and I think you're probably preaching to the choir with a lot of these things because I think my audience tends to, because this is all things that I espouse and believe in. And I would think that the people that tend to listen to me probably are also on, you know, they're probably all mostly left-leaning. Who knows? Maybe. Let me know. I, you know, I never hear from my audience. So please like reach out to me on social media. Let me know, you know, what you think and what you want to hear because I definitely love to find that out. Okay. So if people want to find you, if people want to find the podcast, where is your social media footprint? Yeah. So we're the most active on Instagram. Our handle is at unbiased sci pod. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. We just launched a YouTube channel and are recording our podcasts on video. So please subscribe to our channel. Our handle for everything is at unbiased sci pod. I'm a huge fan and I strongly recommend everybody check it out. I mean, she is just as engaging on the podcast as she is here. So it's educational and entertaining and you'll love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing what you are doing, honestly, clinically and with this podcast. So really, it's a very important work. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested, or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.